This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. He shot and killed horrifically, incomprehensibly. At this school, I have children that are in second, third, and fourth grade. I had hoped when I became president, I would not have to do this. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to this edition of America Changed Forever. We're still feeling the shock. And when I say we, I mean those of us who are journalists covering the Texas shooting, parents all over America who are rattled by what happened in Texas, but grieving families in Texas. So we're feeling this, you know, it's one of those things that happens where, you know, you just don't get over that and move on to the next thing. That is the kind of image that sticks with you, whether you are a kid, a parent, an uncle, grandma, grandpa, you get the picture. And for me, as the host of this show, I know that as we cover the stories that deal with gun rights, gun control, we cover crime stories. You know, people are paying attention. People are paying attention. And I feel the difference because, you know, so much of my career has been covering these kinds of law enforcement related stories. Stories like this one where, all right, something has to change. The way police responded to that kids being shot and killed in that classroom just thinking about the horror that they went through i can't even read some of those stories about you know these accounts of the survivors it's awful and of course per, you know perhaps you know by now the department of justice is going to do a review of the law enforcement response so there is a lot to come. And we, as a news division here at CBS News, we've been covering it. Let's listen to one of the reports from Texas. My last remaining question on 911 calls is who is receiving the 911 calls from the little boys and girls? Is it just PD or is it just these other entities? I was told that it was just PD. I think that that's an important point. There was human error and there was system error. Also this past week, the president... He has to be feeling the pressure with midterms coming up. You know, his numbers are already, you know, they're in the, I don't know, they're not high. That's for sure. Um, and so he's feeling the pressure from his base. He's got to perform on this issue, gun control. And that's why you had him make that speech on Thursday night, urging Congress to do something. It's like the president throwing a pass. Here, Congress, you catch it. And if you don't do something, I can blame you. But until then, the weight of this issue is on the president's shoulders. Here's what he had to say. This is not about taking away anyone's guns. In fact, we believe we should be treating responsible gun owners as an example of how every gun owner should behave. At the same time, the Second Amendment, like all other rights, is not absolute. According to new data just released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, guns are the number one killer of children in the United States of America. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? So we're going to talk about not only the Biden response to this, Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, the ultimate, ultimate political tactician. Michael Schur, national political reporter with The Washington Post, will talk about his profile on Mitch McConnell. What he will do is, is sort of provide cover for his members wherever they fall on this. I feel compelled 
to speak to one of our correspondents covering the aftermath of the shooting in Uvalde. Lilia Luciano has been there, witnessing the debate over what went wrong, the heated debate. She's also talked to grieving parents, and she's seen the beginning of the long list of heart-wrenching funerals. It's a lot to take in, but such an important story right now, which is why we're going to talk about it. This is just a discussion. It's a discussion about what's going on in Uvalde and looking ahead. Lilia, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's, it's good to hear you. Yeah, so you, you've done great work down there. And, and of course, as a, as a news division, we appreciate it because having covered mass shootings in the past, and each and every one of them is unique, there are different challenges, but they are tough for any journalist, any human being to cover because there is so much grief involved in this with these kids shot and killed by this person who took his own life. But you have this aftermath. You have all these funerals uh, started this past week. What are your thoughts having to cover a story like this and to to see these parents grieving in the, in the ways that they are? We get, unfortunately, uh, so many tragedies um, and 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 events of you know mass casualty events. It, it's never easy. You never get used to it. It never hurts less. Um, the hardest thing, I think, Jeff and Jeff, as you know, is is having to reach out to parents on their the worst moment of any human being's life. You know, having just lost, and especially in this case, small children, and asking them to open up, um, trying to convey that you know this is for them in a way memorialize and share with the audience who their children were. So it's not just, you know, these are the victims, but who are the victims? Um, so they're not, you know, a number or a number of funerals or an age, but, you know, a child who loved, loved TikTok and, you know, a child who was extremely talented at drawing and a child who wanted to be a marine biologist and one who wanted to be a police officer so that he could save people or protect people from bad guys. Um, it's 19 children and, and then two teachers who are being praised as heroes, each with their story. You know, one whose husband was on the other side of the school walls as one of the police, uh, of the school district police officers. Another whose husband died two days later, who's a mother to four children of a heart attack. But of course, you know, the family has described more of a, a consequence of heartbreak. Um, you know, the personal part of it, it's, it's a balance that you have to strive to, you know, not dissociate, but at the same time be able to continue, you know, day after day and focus on asking the questions and demanding accountability and making sure that both, you know, the stories of the children are honored, but, you know, the, the demands of the parents are also, you know, followed and, and pressed on when it comes to authority. And it's been really difficult to cover because the local authorities are just completely shut. Um, you know, I, I have communication with DPS. I have some county connections and some some local, you know, officials who are willing to talk. But some don't go on camera. And then, you know, what you have is is the you know the elected officials, not all of them, but people like Senator State Senator um, Roland Gutierrez has been very vocal. Uh, but the people who can give the answers are have just kind of gone underground, you know, lawyered up, uh, I, and 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 we have so many questions um, that just are begging answers, and it's been really hard to get those. On the one hand, you know, as as reporters, we appreciate when early on in a situation the public officials come out. They give you information and it's not just giving the journalist information, but it's giving the community the information that it needs at that very traumatic time. You know, do you, if you live in that neighborhood, how do you respond to a situation like that? Do you lock your doors, stay home, stay off the street so police can respond? So that initial information is important. 
The flip side to that is that initial information is often wrong. And in this case, the information that they were given or giving to the public was really off. I mean, it wasn't even close. And there are a lot of parents who are um, grieving because of it. They, you know, the information that they had was wrong. Uh, the information that they were being given at the time that this was all unfolding in the classroom was wrong. And, and that's why it is so important to get to the bottom of what really happened. At the core of this story is the fact that somebody made an assessment based on, we don't know officially, but we can presume based on the fact that there was silence at a certain point coming from that classroom or based on information that hasn't been relayed to us. But the person in charge made a call and said, this is no longer an active shooter situation. This is a barricaded suspect with no one to save or no one left to save behind that door. Uh, that meant that it took 75 minutes for the shooter, the active shooter, to be stopped. The way he was stopped is because Bortec, the, the, the special operations, the, the tactical unit of Border, of border Patrol, uh, Bortec agents, despite the order from the person in charge to not go in because this was, you know, supposedly in a, a barricaded suspect situation, they went in. The way they went in, they didn't take down the door. I've learned that the door doesn't kick in as easily because it opens to the outside, but, you know, they figure it out. Um, instead of, of just, you know, pushing in or, 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 or you know, or, or taking down the door, whatever is required, they waited for the keys from a janitor. I mean, imagine all of the steps that had, you know, that took place in those 75 minutes uh, before the shooter was stopped. But at the same time that this is happening, you know, we've, we've heard 911 operators, not from the official 911 calls, because those are not being released, but from the police radios, uh, filmed by the families that were outside of the school, where children are heard saying, we're here, we were shot. Uh, you know, the DPS also told us that, yes, in fact, it was a girl, a little girl calling, begging for police to come in and save them, that there were still eight or nine children alive. And we have heard those tapes. So why wasn't the 911 dispatch being relayed or what happened in this you know, in, in, in the sharing of information and communication, um, what didn't happen that made the chief of the school district police assume that this guy was on his own and that they had time. I just heard today from someone who is not authorized to speak uh, with media, but told me that, in fact, you know, this person showed up in the scene and was providing medical assistance, told me that this was a disaster, told me that it was extremely disorganized, um, that, you know, they had resources available that weren't being used, resources that were deployed that were not being used because of the lack of coordination or poor co coordination among the several agencies that were present. And we're talking about Texas Rangers, we're talking about Border Patrol, and then at the local level, Uvalde City Police, and then at the hyper-local level, the school district police. And another question that everybody asks is, Jeff, how come, and you're more of an expert in this, and, and you know, I'd ask you, first of all, they say it's standard procedure. Is it, does it have to be, and why is it standard procedure? But a tiny police unit that only oversees the schools in a small town of 16,000 people where there's just a handful of schools that has six officers that they oversee, uh, why is the person in charge of that unit the one in charge of the entire incident? A mass casualty, you know, a, a mass shooting in, a, in an elementary school of the magnitude that we haven't seen in a decade since Sandy Hook. Yeah, it's, you know, that, that is a good question. And the hope is that the Department of Justice review that uh, will begin, unless it already has begun, it's it's been announced, but I don't know if it's officially begun. But those are the kinds of questions that they will seek to answer. And frankly, 
it won't take an expert in law enforcement uh, to determine that something went terribly wrong here. You mentioned how they were waiting for a key to open a door. Are you kidding me? I don't think I've ever, in years of covering mass shootings since Columbine, waiting for a key. You know, you you can understand the frustration of the parents who were said, some of them who were said to be outside of the school, uh, pleading with the police to let them go in. I would have reacted the same way if my kid was in there waiting for a key. No, you bust through that door. And that's pretty obvious. That's the training that law enforcement does. I interviewed a mom, Angeli Gomez, a mother who, you know, has some charges in the past, a woman who's on probation that knows that any interaction will pol- with police will jeopardize her life. A woman so, who is so powerless in this society. She works as a farm worker since she was 18 years old. She still showed up. She tried to go in. Marshals handcuffed her. Then the local police said, she's a mom, let her, you know, release her. She doesn't need to be handcuffed. They released her. This woman in that position of powerlessness and desperation still went into the school. She grabbed her kids. She grabbed her kids' friends. She was, was, was pleading with her kids' teachers to open the door and let them all out to say, you know, the shooter's not here, come out. And she says, as she was walking into the school, she's looking around and there's, you know, snipers on the floor crouched far away from where their shots were being fired. She said she saw no other law enforcement inside the halls. Clearly, I mean, she, she, this could have happened either before they went in or while they, the 19 officers we know that were in were inside, but maybe in a different area outside of this classroom. But, you know, that's the kind of response that every person in this com- community, in this state, in this nation, and in the world expects from such, you know, well-equipped law enforcement agencies. We're talking, you know, especially DPS. The Texas Department of Public Safety, as you know, Jeff, I have done ride-alongs with them at the border, where they have no jurisdiction to detain immigrants, and they have dozens upon dozens upon dozens of patrols and, and officers waiting, waiting for radars to ca- and private security cameras to, to detect migrants crossing the, the Rio Grande River and come into, into the U.S. Only if they come into private ranches can these uh, troopers deploy, you know, part of, of the Texas Department of Public Safety go and make an arrest for, for breaking in, for trespassing. <laughs> because, you know, according to the governor of Texas, the, the federal government doesn't do enough or Border Patrol doesn't do enough. In every other case where they're not stopping someone for, you know, a human smuggler or someone who they're stopping for drugs already on the U.S. side, anywhere outside of those private ranches, they have to still call Border Patrol. And guess what? This is their jurisdiction. They're supposed to go in there. They're supposed to respond and take charge being, you know, this this, this strong police force that they are, according to the governor, that can take the job of Border Patrol on the border. And this is their jurisdiction. And they still had to wait for Border Patrol, which has nothing to do with community policing, to come in, wait for a key, and finally kill that shooter. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to have to figure these jurisdictional issues out. And it's not uncommon What we saw unfold there in terms of trying to figure out, well, who has jurisdiction here, who's in control. And unfortunately, in situations like that, sometimes ego plays a role. And that's why it is so important that this review establish a protocol. And not only for Uvalde, but for other small towns across this country. You know, I think the tendency is to believe that, oh, this is not going to happen here. Well, at the rate that these things are happening, there is a better chance now more than ever that your community will experience a, a mass shooting situation, which, you know, as you were outlining some of the deficiencies in the response there, I was just thinking, you know, I remember covering post-George Floyd, and I'm not going to drift off, digress too much here. But there was all this talk about defunding the police. And frankly, you know, as soon as I heard that, 
as a reporter, I felt my job was to question the people in the city of Minneapolis who were saying, oh, we need fewer police because the immediate tactical situation that popped into my head when people are talking about having fewer police is a situation like a mass shooting where you need a professional, well-trained police force to react and to react quickly. And on top of that, you know, I don't know if people talk about this enough, but this is a mass shooting is one of the most challenging situations that anyone in law enforcement will respond to. And here's why. You have to be ready to die. You have to be ready to put your life on the line for someone you don't know, for someone you've never met before. But that's what this is. You are asking these officers to go in, sometimes alone, without backup, and take on a shooter who in a lot of cases is going to be more heavily armed than you are. You are having to put your life on, on the line for someone else. And in this, in this situation, it was kids and teachers, you know, and that's why you don't wait for a key. You have to be willing to go and lay your life on the line for someone else or else this killer is going to cause mass fatalities. And that's what happened in this case. And that's what people have to talk about. You know, the, the, you have to be courageous to do that job at that moment. Not everybody can do it. That's a fact. Not everybody is meant to be a first responder in that kind of situation. But that's what you are asking people to do. And in this situation, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. We cannot have parents running into mass shooter situations. You know, I understand that story about that frustrated parent, and I get it. But, you know, as someone who has this radio show, as someone like you who is, has, has covered or is covering a story like that, we will never encourage parents to run into situations like these because, you know what, it puts more people in danger. But that's why we rely on law enforcement to be well-trained, especially when it comes to protecting our kids. You know, and, and, and th that's exactly right. Uh, the two things that I hear from this community, you know, one is how come they didn't make that call? That's their job. That's why they, you know, that's what they train for in terms of law enforcement. And, you know, the other thing is no, they, as humans, they understand that given the kind of weapon that this shooter had, anybody, no matter how big of a hero you are, you know, and, and two officers did get shot. Initially, two did try to come in the room and they were shot and they were, you know, they were injured. So, of course, they're going to be outgunned uh, or at least individually um, given the weapons. And that's what a lot of the parents are starting to talk about, the advocacy, you know, to control access to, to this kind of, you know, this AR 15 style weapon um you know and, and you're right it parents should not go in there uh, and there's a lot of chaos and confusion and you know hopefully after this review from the department of justice the hope is that you know there's no space for ego in a situation where you have a, a weapon that you know that shoots that many rounds in in one minute where, the, where time is of the essence you don't have you know musical chairs of leadership figuring out, okay, who's going to take over? And that you do have, given the technology that we have for everything right now, that you do have the information that's being relayed, you know, from cell phones, from victims, from people who are with the shooter and are relaying that information, that that is given immediately to every officer responding or to every agency responding. Better coordination and communication. Mm, that is key. Ilya, thank you so much for your reporting. As I said at the outset, these are really difficult stories to cover, but it is so important that the information gets out. CBS News correspondent, Lilia Luciano, thank you. Thank you, Jack. Really appreciate speaking with you. Let's continue our conversation about the Uvalde shooting. 
I think a lot of Americans are looking to Washington to see what kind of solutions it has to stopping this violence. But what's happening in Washington? Because, you know, I think it's fair to say the weekend um, after the shooting, the Biden administration was was pivoting heading into the new week. So, so is, is Washington slowly but surely moving away from any type of gun control? Let, let's talk about one of the major players, if not the biggest piece when it comes to gun control in Washington, and whether something gets done in Congress, and that's Mitch McConnell, the master political tactician who's navigated the controversy of the NRA and mass shootings and gun control for decades now. National political reporter for the Washington Post, Michael Scherer, wrote a a piece recently. The headline was Inside Mitch McConnell's Decades-Long Effort to Block Gun Control. He's with us now. Michael, thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot for having me, Jeff. All right, so this is a fascinating look at Mitch McConnell. You look back at September 14th, 1989, in a mass shooting in McConnell's home state of Kentucky. What happened? Well, that was before uh, these mass shootings had become uh, as routine as they are now. Uh, In that case, it was an AK-47 being used. Um, Eight people were killed. Twelve others were wounded uh, at a printing plant in Louisville. And McConnell's reaction was familiar. It was to come out and say he was deeply disturbed. He said, we must take action to stop such violent crimes. Uh, but then he also added, we need to be careful about legislating in the middle of a crisis. And that turn, uh, he would repeat over and over again, uh, you know, as he became Senate Minority and Majority Leader, uh, as a way of preventing um, the sort of legislation that that many uh, on the gun control side wanted, but that his members, who he has always worked to protect and to help avoid divisive votes, um, did not want to move forward with. And so you have, I mean, depending on where you want to start and how far you want to go, you know, uh, after the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012, he comes out very strongly against efforts by uh, then President Obama and Vice President Biden to put new gun controls in. He he works to undermine a compromise proposal uh, on background checks that Senators Toomey and Manchin put forward. Um, and and there are several points after that where uh, you know he he also sort of steers the Congress uh, towards. Uh, uh, legislation that doesn't touch the third rails of gun control that upset so many in the Republican base. Um, after the, the shootings at a high school in uh, Florida, he encourages everybody to focus on what was then called the Fix Nix bill, which was basically an effort to get the background check system that currently exists working better by putting more names into it. Um, but, but it was a way of saying we're doing something without actually going uh, towards the expanded background checks that some people wanted at the time. Now, we're in an odd space right now because it's not clear uh, if he sees the same political uh, advantage to doing nothing as he has in the past. He's authorized one of his deputies, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, to uh, hold conversations to see if there's a way of getting to some uh, legislation after these last two or three shootings, depending on how you count. Uh, there is a bipartisan group of nine senators who've been meeting and talking about things. What's on the table right now, it seems, are not the, uh, the sort of rules that the Democrats want, uh, which would be, include things like raising the age to buy a long gun to the same age it is right now under federal law to buy a, sh- uh, a, a handgun from 18 to 21 um, or to expand background checks or even assault weapons ban. Those things are not on the table as far as we can tell. But what is on the table are ways of incentivizing states to uh, pass red flag laws, which basically allow judges to take guns away from people who have been flagged as dangers by you know, schools or parents or 
uh, yeah, authorities uh, to expand in some ways background checks, a little unclear, and then to go back to this uh, the sort of rallying cry in the Republican Party right now, which is to increase funding for mental health and school security. Um, and so there is a space now where McConnell has basically authorized negotiations, and, and we just don't know. It's too early to tell whether anything will come of that. Yeah, but all right. So he's, he's authorized negotiations. He is, John. Uh, Gornin of Texas uh, as his emissary, if you will, in these negotiations. But pardon me for being a little skeptical here. Do you think that this is political theater or do you think that something might actually get done? Something more than just the minimum, just putting lipstick on a pig. What do you think? Is this for real? Well, it depends on how you define lipstick on a pig and what the minimum is. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people in the the gun control side, the gun safety side of this debate have been pushing for some federal action on red flag laws. That would be a big deal. It is not banning assault weapons and, and it's not, uh, you know, banning or, or instituting background checks on sales at uh, gun shows, for instance. Um, so, or it's, and it's not raising the age. I mean, in, in two of these shootings, you had basically 18 year olds going out and buying guns uh, that they intended, it seems, to use to kill lots of people. Um, and, and there's, there's a little bit of a pattern there, but so I think it depends on, on how you see, I think the way to think about McConnell is he does not, he come at the gun issue, uh, from a rigid ideological view. He's a second amendment supporter, but there are restrictions he could support. His primary focus here is on the politics and on protecting his members. He is elected to expand the Republican majority and to hold the Republican majority and and to take care of the people who have elected him as the leader of, of the Senate. And there are plenty of examples in recent election years, go back to 2014, uh, even go back to 2020, where in statewide contests in the weeks before elections, even months after mass shootings, Guns are an issue that work for Republicans. Saying we stood up to Obama's gun-grabbing efforts shows up in TV ads because it works with voters. Um, the question now is whether that politics has shifted for enough of his members and whether doing something uh, that doesn't directly affect uh, the sort of top-line gun stuff uh, uh is is it makes makes political sense um and and what he will do is is sort of provide cover for his members wherever they fall on this but at least right now he's allowing the discussion it's very consistent with what he's done in the past you know there's another moment that's worth mentioning here after the 2019 there were a series of shootings in the summer of 2019 at a el paso walmart and in a in a public square in ohio and immediately after that McConnell was running for re-election that year. There was enormous pressure by Democrats put on McConnell specifically. The House had already passed legislation. President Trump earlier that year after the Parkland shootings in Florida had, had at least for moments suggested he was in favor of much stricter gun regulations. And McConnell came out and said something a little different than what he'd said before, which was, we have to do something. We're ready to do something. We're ready to look at background checks and red flag laws. Um, and that lasted about two weeks. There were protests outside his house. Uh, uh, you know, there were ads run in his district. And when Congress, uh, or when the Senate came back into session in September, he had sort of shifted to saying, well, whatever President Trump decides, we're willing to put on the floor. And, the, and President Trump, who was also walking into a re-election year that year, decided not to do anything. And so nothing happened. Um, it is possible that there was sort of the beginnings of a shift there. Um, that that President Trump shortchanged, at least on these issues like red flag laws, and that that will come to some fruition in, in the coming weeks and months. Gosh, to the average American, all this political maneuvering must just seem ridiculous. I mean, the goal here is to save lives, literally. 
to save lives. Every time you look up, somebody is getting shot. No, not just somebody. Multiple people are getting shot. And oftentimes in these shootings, you have these semi-automatic or weapons that have been converted into fully automatic weapons being used. AR-15s. We keep hearing about that. And so when I when I say that and when I'm what I'm thinking is what Steve Kerr, the coach of the NBA Finals Golden State Warriors said, when are we going to do something? I'm tired. I'm I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on HR 8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they won't vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of our children and our elderly and our churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. Politicians trying to hold on to power rather than protect lives. Kids are afraid to go to school. Teachers are trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way to run and hide if somebody comes into the school with a gun? And so, Michael, when when you talk about these moves that they're making and trying to figure out how this is going to affect the next election, it sounds ridiculous. And and I'm sure you can understand why the American people are are frustrated. A lot of American people are frustrated by this right now. Yeah, I certainly can understand. You know, it is interesting, though, that even though there is that frustration and there's clearly rising anger, if you ask questions about red flag laws or background checks expansion, uh, you, you know, the polling is in 80 or 90 percent in support. Um, it's also true, and this is sort of a fundamental fact of the gun debate, that the people who want more gun regulation are not voting on that issue as much as the people who don't want more gun regulation. The people who want more gun regulation, when they go to the polls, they're not choosing their candidates based on that issue. And that matters. You also have structural advantages built into sort of the American representative system for rural states. You know, the, the big states with very few people uh, get two senators just like California and New York, um, who have, you know, 40 million people. Um, and that means that rural areas, which tend to have guns be just more a part of regular life, uh, have more power when it comes to this issue, um, in, in, in terms of, you know, of, of their representatives. And then I think the other thing you have is the sort of complicated issue of guns. The, 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 the underlying fact of guns in America is the, the, the nation is flooded with them. There are, there are millions of them. Um, the issue of AR-15s are something that really have uh, come to the fore in the last two decades after the assault weapons ban passed, and so now you have, you know, much more uh, a much greater uh, distribution of weapons of war, basically, as opposed to just rifles or handguns, which is what people would buy, uh, uh, you know, uh, during the 1990s and even before the 1990s when when these sort of assault weapons were as commonly available, you know, the, the most of these mass shooters, I mean, most mass shootings are still committed with handguns. Many of the mass shooters who do these things are young people who don't have criminal records. So they wouldn't be flagged in background checks. They're, they're recluses who are angry at the world and, and are sort of plotting their revenge. And so there's also a, a very real debate about what is the solution um, to this problem? How far can you go to really have an impact? Um, and so it's so it's a complicated debate, but the but the anger is definitely real. Yeah, the anger is real. I know you know you're obviously a really really good reporter, and I know that you you probably reached out to McConnell's office. What did, what did they say? Did they have any response to your reporting? They responded to some of the specific uh, uh, anecdotes we had in the in the story, sort of explaining 
their side of of those cases. I think you talk to Republican uh, Senate leader uh, advisors, uh, and they will tell you that that you know Mitch McConnell doesn't mind being the bad guy uh, in the public eye. He sees his job as serving his members and uh, building Republican power in the Senate. Uh, and he's okay with that. Um, and if he can get something done to deal with these issues without jeopardizing that, then he's okay with that too. But there's a very pragmatic core to Mitch McConnell, and there always has been. Uh, we're, we're standing by watching to see what happens in the Senate. And um, that's where the focus should be at this point. Don't you agree in terms of actually getting something done because the House has passed the legislation? And so the focus right now is on the Senate. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the House is probably going to pass more legislation in the coming days. Um, there, there may be, a, 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 you know, going further to, to increase the age for long guns, for instance, for purchasing a long gun. But you're right that the, the action is in the Senate because the House can pass whatever it wants. You need 60 votes right now. In the Senate, you have 50 Democrats, um, so that means you need at least 10 Republicans. And to get 10 Republicans, you probably need more than 10 Republicans because there's not that many who are going to break from the, the rest of the party if they're sticking together. So, um, so that's why the, the conversation right now is not around banning assault weapons, raising the age, dramatically expanding um, the background check system. The conversation is about red flag laws, school funding. Uh, school hardening, uh, mental health treatment, uh, and things like that. So, but 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 those conversations are ongoing. There have been uh, some signals out of the Senate this week that there is a framework that people are working in that progress is being made. Um, I think the fact that we had another shooting this week uh, in Tulsa will probably add something to that. I mean, every time one of these shootings happens, and they happen quite frequently now. And quite consistently, the pressure goes up. So I think there is there is a incentive here for lawmakers to do something. Washington Post national political reporter Michael Shearer, thank you. Thank you. As we come to the end of this episode of America Change Forever, the headline was "School Struggle." with student mental health. I saw it in the Washington Post, and as the parent of two girls. You know, I pay attention to stories like that because I know the last few years because of the pandemic and frankly, mass shootings, it's, you know, it takes a toll on people. It takes a toll on our kids. So many different factors that create the kind of stress that can be tough on parents and their kids. And so that article in the Washington Post, it, it talked about data that shows that the pandemic, it has, it is having an impact on kids. Let's talk about it. Dr. Peggy Carr is the commissioner of the National Center for Education Statistics. They conducted a survey. Dr. Carr, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. So what was the thing that stood out to you about the findings in this data? Well, it was a um, pulse survey, which we take uh, monthly. We've been doing it consistently since January, trying to get a handle on the impact of COVID on American schools, looking at a, a number of different indicators. And mental health was one of the ones we just uh, assess in recent months. I would say um, the finding that stood out the most was the report of 76% of the schools saying there had been an increase in staff expressing concerns about students' mental health. By that, I mean depression, anxiety, trauma. That was a big, uh, a big finding out of this report. Yeah, and I, I don't want people to get the impression that we are making the connection between the data that you found, any school shooting, 
Um, that's not what we're doing here. Really good point, Jeff. Yeah, because the, the data that you had came before the shooting in Texas. Uh, yeah, actually, just we j- released it just uh, a few days before. So, so this is uh, indicative of what students were already experiencing uh, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, we believe we actually asked the teachers and the staff and the faculty, how are students doing since the pandemic? So yes, it preceded that tragic um, shooting uh, in Texas. But what did you find about uh, the age of the students? At what point is it is it really having an impact? Is it the younger kids or the high school kids, middle school kids? What does the data show? Anxiety and depression is not uh, particularly uh, indicative of any particular age. It's happening uh, all around. This was a K-12 uh, assessment and uh, of the impact on students. And uh, we looked at what schools were doing. Um, there's a lot more going on in high schools in terms of responding to it, but the impact is everywhere at all at all of the ages that we examine. I'm looking at the data. Seven in ten public schools are seeing a rise in the number of children seeking services. So the these kids are asking, or at least they're looking for help. And the teachers are seeing it too. We're having um, the the teachers and the staff tell us what they're seeing, and they are also reporting uh, an increase amongst their students. All right. And so do these schools, do they have the resources to to address these needs? I mean, I'm you know, at the college level, I know that a lot of universities have had to beef up their mental health staffing. So, so what about in the, the local school systems? Are the resources there? Well, they are struggling with funding. We asked them about that. Um, most of them say they are providing services, um, but a lot of them are not confident they are providing the services to the degree that they would like, about one in 10 say that they think they have it under under control there. But um, most of them are struggling and providing what they can. One thing that I appreciate, and I'm a, you know, I'm a public school kid. My kids are in public schools. And what we're seeing at schools across the country, according to the data that you have, 28% of schools said that they made changes to their daily or yearly academic calendars in hopes of mitigating mental health issues. So it, it seems to me, based on that data, that they are adapting to what their students are facing and feeling. Yeah, they are adapting. You know, about two-thirds of them have increased the type of uh, responses that they provide to students, whether we're talking about one-on-one case studies uh, with uh, students that are having particular problems or referring to um, uh, out services in the community with therapists. So yeah, they're working hard to um, respond to what they're saying. But uh, some of them are really taking it to heart, about 30%, as you indicated, are actually making changes to their daily uh, instruction or their curriculum or something in their academic calendars. So that's, that's sort of demonstrative. So we, we have to hand it to those who are taking that kind of mitigation strategy. And what about the teachers themselves? Who do they go to for help? Well, you know, a survey says that um, principals are reaching out to them uh, because they're worried about them as well. Um, and they're doing uh, all that they can. They're responding by giving them more planning time, uh, more uh, opportunities to uh, sort of reach out to students in their in their own way, but, but definitely uh, more planning time. And some of them are actually giving them time off and compensation. They're really trying to take care of their teachers as well. Tell me about the origin of this survey 
at the National Center for Education Statistics. Um, is is this the kind of survey that you do annually? No, it isn't. It's a new methodology for us, and we're really pleased with um, the data that we're gleaming from this uh, uh uh, this uh, this new approach is monthly, something that we haven't done before. It's a pulse survey uh, by um, indication. We, we go in and we take a, a look at what's happening in a panel of schools um, once a month. The Institute of Education Sciences, where we are located, received for the first time in the history of the Institute an executive order from the president. Uh, we received it in January uh, of 21 to, to better understand, to do what we could to better understand the impact of COVID on American schools. So this response, um, this survey uh, is part of the activities put in place by this institute. The American Rescue Plan, of course, you've heard of that, Jeff, is really uh, the impetus for this executive order. You know, it is so important to get a sense of, you know, what kids are going through at this moment in history. Um, there is so much for them to see. Um, unfortunately, that is negative. Uh, there is a lot of positive out there, uh, obviously, as well. But, you know, it's not just, and I'm saying this as a parent, um, it's not about just school systems, finding ways to get kids to express themselves in a positive manner. But it's also about us parents. You know, you get statistics and data like this. What it says is that these kids are looking for someone to express themselves to, someone to explain, you know, the world to them in, in some ways, to help them relieve the pressure that they feel. Um, so I appreciate the data that you have, Dr. Carr. I appreciate you coming on the program. Absolutely. Check back with us, Jeff, in a few months. We're going to repeat this particular module for this survey, this mental health uh, component. Uh, so down the line a little bit, when we get into the next school year, we'll see where we are with these indicators. All right. Well, hopefully things improve in those indicators. Dr. Peggy Carr, Commissioner of the National Center for Education Statistics, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jeff. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.